The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and a big welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Feel free to come up afterward and introduce yourself if you'd like. Most of you know, but for the new folks, and just as a reminder to all of us old-timers, Common Ground operates on this particular principle we call dana, which is the Pali word for generosity. But it points to something more than just our typical use of the word generosity. It's more an attitude of the mind where we're practicing. It's a practice to step outside of the general stinginess of our minds in all ways and to relate, like in our lives, relate to our friends, to our communities, to all the different parts of our life, not in a tight or stingy way, but in a generous way. And it's about entering this circle of giving and receiving. So practically, we operate the center this way. It's not a gimmick. It's really, it's actually a challenging practice. We have to practice receiving whatever you get from being here as a free gift, no strings attached. And just notice, it's nice that it's given away. And of course it happens because all the people who made this place happen over the years. And then if you're inspired to give, if, it, if you feel like it will make you happy to contribute or to volunteer your time or just to wish well for the center, then you do that in a way that makes you happy. And that's really the barometer. You know, we have to check. Because it's easy to do, you know, it's, it's so much simpler to say, just tell me how much I should contribute, or, you know, just tell me what's allowable, or... But it's not like that, right? It's like each of us, from our own particular perspective, our own particular situation, we have to figure out what is a healthy relationship. And this is not just true in terms of common ground, but with everything we relate to. Do we have an honest, authentic relationship where there is a circle of giving and receiving? And it isn't even about whether there's any money involved. You know, there, there needs to be some sense of appreciation of the person, the organization, the whatever, and some willingness to connect and to give back and to support and to wish well so that we're actually in relationship with everything that we're in relationship in our life. We're consciously giving and receiving, awake to the giving and receiving. So we invite people to do it here at Common Ground. We have a sheet out in the lobby near the donation bowl. Uh, actually, it's under the bulletin board that has a little bit more information and, of course, on our website, and you can check in with me. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. You know, people contribute after programs or before programs or go online and contribute or put themselves on a, you know, a monthly contribution or either through your checking account or your credit card or give a donation once a year or don't have any money to contribute, which is totally okay. And volunteer your time or just volunteer your good wishes for the community and for the center. So we don't check up on folks. It's just up to you. So if you ever have any questions about that, just contact the office, see me, Gail, our bookkeeper, works on Tuesdays, um, and Shelley and Gabe, who work in the office, um, are around most of the week. One of them's around most days, so you can just call the office. So we've been looking at effort or energy the last, I think, three weeks now, so this is our fourth week, and I've been mentioning how central this is to not just the Buddhist teachings, but really being a happy person or just not even be a happy person, just surviving. It's all about energy. It's about finding the capacity to make effort. You know, without, without having some wisdom, some understanding about energy and effort, we generally slide into one of two camps. We slide into helplessness. It's pretty common for us human beings, especially these days, to have at least some bouts of helplessness resignation, despair, which is some version of my uh, 
efforts don't matter, or I don't have any energy to make an effort, or there's just too much out there that's determining everything, so why bother? I give up. It's too big, it's too confusing, too complicated, so I give up. So that's one thing that we have to, one habit, I guess you could say, or tendency of our mind, that understanding, a deepening understanding of energy and effort will be, will prevent us from falling into that hole of that depressive, helpless, despairing, it's too much, it's too confusing attitude. Now the other is where we, in a sense, are addicted or dependent on just doing and we're afraid to slow down and be reflective about what, whatever it is we're doing, whether it does any good. Like what actually is being set in motion. Like we've met, a, we've all of us have made a lot of effort, and you can just fill in the blank, to meet people, to cook interesting food, to get ahead in our jobs, to acquire knowledge, to, you know, build model airplanes, to... You can just check the internet, <laughs> check our emails. So we've all, in different ways, have made lots of effort. So the question is, what has been gained from the effort that has been made? Are we willing to look in an honest, unbiased way, as much as we can, at the fruit of our efforts? Or are we, in a sense, addicted or trapped and just doing. We're afraid to reflect. So we just keep doing what we've always done. Going to work. Competing in the different ways we compete. Like for people's attention. Right? Or people's love. Or the boss's attention to get ahead. Or whatever it is that we have felt you know, compelled to struggle to gain. In the end, in the deepest sense, has that effort been worthwhile? Knowing what I can know, seeing as deeply as I can see, now in hindsight, was that skillful to have put all of that life energy into that activity? Now, this is so interesting when you're a grad student, some of you probably are, or some of you were, or undergrad, or a high school student. And there are times, you know, when we're having to write a paper, or take a test, or do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's this thought that wants to creep in, but we usually repress it like, what am I doing? Where is this going? Is this really worth it? Is this really worth it? I remember I had, at where I went to college, you had to write a thesis, and I remember the last several days, oh God, it still has an unpleasant taste in my mouth, kind of a humiliating taste, just staying up, and back then, you know, we didn't have computers, so we used that sort of little strip of white paper, you know, to fix your typos, and, <laughs> and uh, I remember having missed so much sleep in those last few days, I don't know how much I slept, but not much at all, I remember this great, clear resolve rising in my mind, I will never do this again. <laughs> it's like, it was so, like to jump through this hoop when I didn't feel good about, you know, I just kind of classic problem of waiting too long, you know, assuming that, oh yeah, I'll get it done. <laughs> and I did, I got it in on time, but <laughs> it wasn't a product I was particularly proud of. Um, but that feeling of uh, like, oh, this is not helpful. I mean, it's like, what did I learn from that? What do we learn from these kind of efforts that we have made in life? So this is like we have to be willing to be reflective no matter how much cognitive dissonance, like I put so much into it, this is not the time to be reflective, you know? Like I'm 99% or 79 or 59. But I don't want to look back. I don't want to wonder, should I be doing this? Even in our relationships, we can have that too. I just have so much invested in this relationship. 
I don't care if it's a bad relationship. <laughs> I'm just going forward, you know. So we don't want to fall in like uh, with our habits around effort and energy into the belief system of helplessness. It's too much. It's too big. It's too complicated. I give up. Or this sort of blind, keep going, keep doing, keep pushing. Something good is bound to happen, right? If I just keep making effort, something good is bound to happen. But that's not actually true. But we're just, we don't want to consider the alternative, which is a kind of humility. Okay, I don't really know if all this effort I've been making has been useful. But I have enough integrity to take a close look at what I've been doing with my life energy, how I've been applying myself to the task of being a human being, and directly looking as honestly as we can at what's been set in motion. And is it good? Is it wholesome? Or is it unwholesome? Right? What have we set in motion? Because all of the Buddhist teachings really grounds into this teaching on karma. That intention, intentional thoughts, intentional words, intentional actions or deeds, they set emotion, set something in motion, consequences, right? So this experience we're having right now, the quality of our mind, the way it is for each of us, is the cumulative result of what's been set in motion. What else would this be? So in Buddhism, sometimes we have this clever little phrase, if you want to know the past, see what's arising right now in your heart and mind. Because the tendencies that are being activated right now for me, where would they come from, these tendencies, these dispositions, if not the past conditioning? So karma, karmic actions, then bear fruit as this. Now, if we want to know the future, you could try a psychic, but it would be even more effective to notice how you're relating right now to the conditions that are showing up for you. Because how we relate right now, the kind of thoughts we have, the kind of words we speak, the kind of actions we act out, that those intentional actions set in motion what's going to come. That's where the future comes from. It arises out of how we relate to what's arising. So if it's really difficult for us right now, that difficulty doesn't shape the future. How we relate to the difficulty shapes the future. Or if you're having a really pleasant, generally speaking, pleasant stretch in your life right now, that just because it's pleasant now doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant in the future. But how you relate to the pleasantness right now, that makes an imprint in your mind. If you take all the pleasantness that's going on in your life right now personally, or you deserve it, or always be this way, well, that kind of ignorance, because that's just a story we're telling ourselves, it's a, like a kind of denial, that's going to pay dividends in the future. That sort of sort of superficial sense that if it's nice now, it's going to be nice in the future. I mean, how many human beings have been surprised by that delusion that things are nice, things are nice, things are nice, and then your best friend gets cancer, or you get cancer, or you think you're living in a really wholesome place, wholesome place, wholesome place, and then some of the deeper systemic imbalances and injustices in that seemingly wholesome community start to stand out where we get to see them a little bit more clearly. And we go, oh. Right? So things can change, but if we're practicing relating in a certain way, then the mind, that changes the mind stream. So then in the future, the mind is likely to relate in the way that we're relating right now. So even though it might be really pleasant for us or difficult for some of you or sort of neutral for some of you, every moment we can be making the effort to relate to the present moment, to the conditions that are arising for us 
in a way that will take care of us down the road. It's like planting seeds. If I relate to the present moment in a superficial way, my mind will have a stronger tendency to be superficial in the future. If I relate to the present moment with irritation or with greed or with some kind of deluded notion or fixed notion, then it's more likely in the future that my mind will relate in a fixed way or a deluded way. If I relate right now with a real intention to be clear, to be mindfully aware, to be intimate, then that will make it more likely to be mindful in the future. I mean, that we say this in Buddhist practice circles, that the proximate cause for being mindfully aware is to be mindfully aware. Like if we want to increase the habit of mindfulness, the odds of being more awake in life, then we practice being awake in this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and this moment. And it's like planting seed. But if instead we're spending this moment judging ourselves for not being very mindful, then we'll get really good at that. So the likelihood in the future is we'll be judging ourselves for not being very mindful. So we're literally, you know, carving grooves, you know, modern day neuroscience so it has their own way now of uh, seeing this, how these neural pathways get carved or get greased so that what starts out as a something we do once, then the next time around it's a little bit easier, then after a while it's really easy, and pretty soon it's established as your character, as a sort of a deep personality pattern. That is not, even if you see it clearly, right? Isn't it true that there are some of our personality patterns that we can see, and we can see that they're unskillful, but it doesn't mean we can refrain from doing it, because the momentum the sort of depth and greasiness of that groove overwhelms whatever clarity the mind has, like, you know, honey, that's not very useful. That's not very skillful. That's not really helping anyone. But we can't really stop the mind because of the momentum of habit. So karma, in, in some ways, is funny, the teaching on karma. On the one hand, it's very liberating because it teaches us that the future has yet to be formed, right? I mean, there are tendencies, of course. We already have some dispositions. But we can always write another chapter, right? We can always now relate with a lot of kindness and a lot of wisdom, and that will affect how things unfold. But karma, the teachings on karma can also appropriately, I don't want to use the word scare us, but they can rouse some urgency like, don't think you can put it off because by putting off our desire, our wholesome desire to be awake and skillful means that we just have more work to do later. You know, okay, I'll be bad for a while, but then eventually I'll clean up the shop. You know, I'll kind of bring order to the mind and weed out all those noxious weeds in the mind. But those weeds will be... <laughs> Buckthorn. I don't know if you've ever tried to dig out buckthorn, but it's not easy to take out, right? They have special devices to kind of, but even once it gets too big, it doesn't matter if you cut it down, it just grows back. So it's like that with these tendencies of the mind. It's so much easier to nip them when they're fresh and new than when they've gotten deeply established in the mind. And actually a sign of somebody who's... Um, been doing practice for a while is a deepening respect for cause and effect, for the power of intention to shape the world, to shape our mind, and therefore our world. And that it actually is just the opposite of helplessness. So, like I mentioned, you know, you can make karma a heavy trip, like, oh my God, all of that stuff I said in motion when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah, and then, and then all that stuff I did in my 20s. Oh, yeah, and then <laughs> all that stuff I did in my 30s. And, you know, on and on, all that stuff I did today. So, but 
we, <clears throat> we can use that reflection to send us back into helplessness, but we can also, which is not skillful, of course, but if we're into just the doing and not being reflective, we can use some of that reflection to put some brakes on. Okay, let's just stop for a moment. Stop the doing. Stop assuming that what I want to do actually sets something good in motion. And let me be a little bit or a lot more reflective. So, okay, I will go to work this morning. Or I will engage this relationship. Or I will, you know get involved in this hobby or this social justice issue. But I'm not going to make any assumptions. So as I'm doing it, I'm going to be interested in what's actually important. What kind of mind is being created in this activity? And this is really important for people who care about changing the world, a social activist. It's not that we should stop being a social activist, but to understand that there are two things that get set in motion, and you might be surprised that the mind, that you know, the qualities of mind that are gaining momentum as you engage the world might have actually more power to ruin or save the world than the actual activities you do, whether it's you know writing letters to congressmen or protesting or you know any way that you raise your kids. You know, we can think when we're raising kids or involved in an important social justice issue that it's okay to sacrifice mental health or it's okay to use anger or greed or violence or whatever. But we can see directly in our mind if we watch, if we observe with awareness, what gets set in motion. And this world is just the cumulative expression of all of our minds together, right? The messiness, the injustice, the delusion, you know, like the sort of expression of consumerism, the more we have, the happier we are. These kind of ideas, you know, consumerism doesn't exist out there in some place called culture. It's in our hearts and minds. It's like here. So whatever we think is good or bad about our economic system, it doesn't exist anywhere except cumulatively in our minds, right? All of the biases and prejudices and all the you know systemic injustices built into our institutions, they're not in our institutions, they're in our minds and hearts. They're conditioned into us. And then they get expressed through the institutions and the structures of our society and our world and our nation states and corporations and things like that. So we have to understand that <clears throat> the world is nothing but our minds. You know, whatever is actually beautiful and good and whatever is despicable and unwholesome, they're all, it's all in our mind, our heart. So when we start to value that and take responsibility, like we hold the teachings on karma in just the right way, so there's enough urgency, but not sending us to despair or helplessness. Enough urgency to think, to know, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to tune in to the quality of my mind because it matters, because I care about this life and I care about the world, all, all beings. And I have some deepening sense that how this mind is relating right now matters. It sets something in motion. How is the mind relating now? So the Buddha talks about effort and energy in these four ways, making the energy, or making the effort rather, to refrain from what's not skillful, making the effort to abandon. So the refraining or guarding is like preventing an unwholesome state from arising because we have a, little, a lot of primitive dispositions, you know, oh poor me, 
who in the room doesn't have that ingrained in your personality to some degree to feel, oh, poor me. Nobody understands me. Nobody likes me. Nothing good ever happens to me, right? Or, you know, the tendency, you don't matter. You know, I'm more important. Or, you know, I'm no good. I mean, we have all kinds of, this is not fair. You're going too slow. (laughs) I need to get to work. So we have all of these different tendencies towards impatience or hatred and if only some kind of greediness, lust. And we need, they're just in a sense, these latent tendencies, they're just waiting to express themselves. So somebody can trigger any one of our latent unwholesome dispositions or tendencies, right? So how do we, this first kind of effort is, how do we prevent unwholesome qualities from getting established in our minds? And then the second effort is, when an unwholesome tendency has gotten established in my mind, so I'm already whipped up with aversion or anger, how do I abandon, how do I get some space, some freedom from that anger, that greed, that distraction when it's already established in my mind. So the effort to protect or prevent, the effort to abandon, and then there are two other efforts, the effort to develop wholesome qualities. Because we all have this potential to be kind or patient or forgiving, clear, clearly aware. But how can we sort of see that tendency that hasn't yet arisen, hasn't gotten established in mind, how can we establish it in our minds? What do we have to do to bring in gratitude or to bring in joy or to bring in patience or kindness or clarity? What do we do? And then once it's arisen, that wholesome quality, what kind of effort do we make to maintain it? Once once we're already in a pretty generous space, how do we sustain that non-stinginess of mind through the day? Or we're in a really kindly place, really gentle, tender place. How does that sustain? What kind of effort? So this is an easy list to remember, to think of these four. They're really four facets of using our life energy. So understanding the principle of karma, how the mind relates or the intention in the mind sets things in motion. So we can have the intention to prevent unwholesome qualities from getting established. We can have the intention to abandon unwholesome qualities that are established in our minds. We can have the intention to develop beautiful qualities. And we can have the intention to maintain those beautiful qualities. And really, we don't need any other intentions but these four. Right? This basically encapsulate, encapsulates a wholesome life. You don't need to have any other intention but to guard your mind from unwholesome qualities getting established, abandoning the unwholesome that are there, developing wholesome, and maintaining them. And it powerfully simplifies. Like in any moment you're confused about your life, like what the heck am I doing? Just imagine when you're in that place, you go, well, I can do four things. Right? If there's any negative states in the vicinity that are just waiting to enter in, like despair, I wonder what kind of effort now could prevent, will prevent that from getting established. Or if I notice there's something negative here, I'm going to experiment. What can I do to weaken or abandon that unwholesome tendency in my mind? And how do I develop? And of course, Some things, like if you're really caught in a negative state, like anger, it's interesting, if there's even a little thread of mindfulness, you can develop and maintain the mindfulness, and that will be a very skillful way of abandoning the anger, right? So don't think I have to abandon the anger before I develop a wholesome quality. Or another way you can work with anger that's already established in the mind 
instead of hating yourself for being an angry person, you could have a you could cultivate, develop a lot of compassion. You know what? Being an angry person is really unpleasant. I can see it right here. I'm unhappy. I'm angry and I'm unhappy. And I care about it. I care about how unpleasant it is to be an angry person. To want to hurt somebody I love because I'm angry, you know. I want them to feel my pain. You know how it is when we're angry? It's like somehow we want other people to hurt too because we're hurting. So when we see that, but we could see that with compassion, we can develop the compassion, we can maintain it, and surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, it causes the anger to go away. But we haven't directly tried to abandon the anger, so we can abandon unwholesome states by getting really good at developing and maintaining wholesome states. So this is these four kinds of intentions or efforts. They interact with each other, obviously. But it's just a useful way to think about how to be skillful, dividing it into these four ways. Now I want to talk a little bit more about restraint, um, the first one, guarding your mind, preventing unwholesome states, because it can sound a lot, and you can almost think of this as a shadow, um, that repression is sort of the shadow of restraint or guarding, like if only I didn't have to be in this crazy world, then I would prevent, you know, if none of you ever trigger me. We do this a lot with our partners. You know, it's like inevitably people we live with, whether we're romantically, sexually involved with them or not, they trigger us, right? And so it's like, and then we just assume it's their actions, their behavior, who they are, the way they think, the way they look, that's causing me suffering. It never occurs to us that, no, we're the one, our mind is actually connecting with whatever we see in them and struggling with it. It's our mind that has a problem, not their particular personality. And I know that's hard to believe. I used this example this morning in the talk about, you know, like if we're having this program right now and if somebody's cell phone went off, let's say really loudly, and they had a really obnoxious ringtone. And uh, they take it out, you know, making a lot of noise, taking it out, to shut it off. And, but then they realize who's calling, and they take the call. Now, you just imagine, like, what we'd all do. You know, and the, the kind of thoughts that would arise in our mind, like, we'd feel so justify, justified having judgment. Like, what are they thinking? Don't they realize we're at a Buddhist meditation center, you know, or something like that. And, uh, and it's just very interesting. So then we might think, oh God, if I only existed in a place where there weren't stupid people, <laughs> then I wouldn't have to prevent anything. So that's the shadow of restraint, is thinking that I've got to find a life where nobody pushes my buttons and then I've done a good job at guarding my mind. But the Buddha is really talking about using wisdom. And it's interesting. It's really about what we pay attention to. So like if you have that experience where there's some really noxious sound, you know, you could pay attention to the sound, the unpleasantness of the sound, and you can pay attention to your, the thoughts that arise. And you know, there's not much we can do about that initial perception. When we hear something or see something or have some experience, the mind very quickly perceives it. Perception is a construction that our mind puts together, right? And so if something, uh, if something is happening that we construct some painful idea, some painful or difficult story like, that person shouldn't be here, and, by, and they should definitely get a new ringtone, you know. And they, they need a clue, you know, about like when you come in, you've got to shut your cell phone off or whatever. So we have all these things. If we keep looking at that story, that story that that person is stupid then triggers the disgust, you know, the actual contraction in the body, the emotional contraction, which then triggers more of the thinking. 
So it really matters what we pay attention to. So there's different ways. Like we could just come back to the body. The immediacy of the sensations of the body sitting. So there's still the sound. person's talking or the ringtone. But we're just not attending to it. And we might get a little space from that. But there's a little repression there, isn't there? Like I'm afraid to let my mind go there. Because if I do, I'm going to be really angry. I'm just not going to look. And we do that sometimes, like if someone's really pushing our, our button, we say, I just can't go to that party because that person's going to be there and I just can't stand that person. You know, they really push my buttons. So I'm not going to go. So we have all these ways or techniques, but there's some quality of repression. So a, a more subtle, but ultimately more powerful technique is when that's happening to be right with the experience itself. So not going to the story, the perception, but the sound of the voice itself. Because let's say it's really predominant. You can't ignore it. So don't try to ignore it. Same thing, this is what we learn with pain. Maybe you've noticed this experience. Like when we have a lot of physical pain, if I go right to the immediacy of the physical sensations, the unpleasant physical sensations, just the dance of those sharp, achy, whatever kind of sensations they are, I'm actually, my mind is actually protected. Protected from the negative state of anger or fear or whatever we might have. But as soon as I go to the story that my knee really hurts, then all of a sudden all the other tendencies, negative tendencies, start having some room to express themselves. Why me? Maybe I'm going to die. You know, it's just like that the possibilities are proliferating in ways that cause the mind and body to get tight and tangled are endless. But if we can stay right in the immediacy of it, then there's some freedom. So when we guard our senses, when we pay attention to what's triggering us, uh, this is especially useful in daily life, because when we're sitting, there's hopefully a little bit less that can trigger us. That's the whole point of our formal meditation time, is we're being thoughtful about when we do it, where we do it, who's around us, what the cat's doing. So nothing is going to bother us. Something still will bother us because these latent negative tendencies aren't actually in the objects. It's not in the sound of the ringtone or the sound of that person's voice or the fact that he or she's talking in this room. It's in our mind. The aversion is in our mind. The hatred, the judgment, it's here. So even if we had the perfect meditation hall with absolutely no sound except just the beautiful sound of flowing water, you know, and the nice scent of fresh flowers, just the right amount of breeze, you know, maybe bamboo or, or wind through pine needles, you know, whatever it is for you, uh, just the wafting of incense, you know, the mumbling of Buddhist chants in the background, <laughs> whatever would be perfect for you, we still have those latent tendencies in our mind. So it's not about thinking we can get away from them, it's about what we do with those latent tendencies so that we don't take the bait. And this is where mindfulness, like the immediacy of the present moment experience or bare attention is so powerful. If we can just be in the immediacy, there's really no room. See, hatred requires a story, right? It's this dualistic story of me who hates, and that object may be you. You know, you can hate yourself, but it's still, there's a sense of a me who hates myself or me who hates you, or me who's disgusted with the world. But there's always this dualistic thing, and you could just call that a story or a mental cognitive activity based on the initial perception that he's doing this to me or he shouldn't be doing this to us. And then once we're on that level, then basically anything's possible. Then we need to make the effort to abandon. But we can prevent it getting to that level by staying right at the level of sensation, the seeing, 
Seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. Sensations are just sensations being known, being felt. Smells and tastes are being known. Thoughts are just thoughts. So we don't take the bait when a thought arises, a perception arises. Why is he doing that? The mind simply knows, oh, that's just a thought. Why is he doing that? Oh, that's just judgment being known. And even if we get a little bit hooked so that judgment actually has a charge to it, we start to, in a sense, feel the gravitational pull of wanting to get seduced, wanting to spin with like, why is he doing it? Then we notice, oh, and it feels like this. Judging feels like this. So we keep bringing things back to the immediacy of sensation, sight, sound, thoughts are just thoughts being known. And it's what's, this is how we guard the mind, or this is how we prevent the mind from getting established in negative, unwholesome qualities. We stay in the immediacy. Now, when you can't do that, when you don't have enough balance or momentum in your practice to do that, then run, right? So that's when we say, you know, I should really leave this room because I can't stand being with this person. And if I stay here, it's going to trigger a lot of negativity. I'm just going to be sitting here, you know, spinning or finding a friend to gossip with. So I'm just going to go home. Or, you know, we're in the meditation hall and somebody is just making a lot of noise and we work with it. And at some point we can't work with it anymore. And the thoughts we have, the negative thoughts we have about that person overwhelms the mind. Then that's the time to, to direct your attention away from that. Put your attention somewhere else. Because you don't have the n- enough stability to be with the sound is just sound. The idea, the perception, there's a guy doing something that they shouldn't be doing, and then the thoughts that that sets in motion, you can't keep your mind from doing it. So then turn your attention somewhere else, or whatever you basically, whatever you have to do, because anything basically is better than letting the mind get swept away in a negative direction. So if you can prevent your mind, it's better to prevent it than to have to, once your mind is entrenched in that negativity, to unhook it. It's really hard. Sometimes we're so in to the anger or to the lust or greed that all wisdom in the mind can do is keep aware that it's like you're drowning and every once in a while you come above water and, you, and the mind has just, the wisdom in the mind has just enough space, just enough time to go, this isn't helping. This is really unskillful. And then you get pulled down again and you're spinning. Yeah, but they shouldn't have and I can't believe it. And, and then maybe it's two hours later, maybe it's two minutes later, you come up and you go, this isn't helping. I'm lost. My mind is swept away. I wish it weren't, but it is. And then you're down again. And, you're, and we have to wait until the mind exhausts itself. Have you noticed that sometimes when we're in a really dark or difficult place? It's like finally the mind exhausts itself and it stops at some point. And then there's sort of the devastated landscape of the body and mind having spent the last 15 minutes or 20 days or whatever it's been sort of caught in not not maybe every moment, but in many moments in that in those not so helpful states. So I'm saying that just to inspire us to develop so the, the, the that's why we have our daily set. Because in that relatively simple environment, when there you know there the noxious or challenging things that arise from our memory or from the environment or wherever in that relatively simple environment, we can gain skill at preventing our mind from taking the bait. I could worry about my to-do list, but I'm going to come back to the breath. Or maybe before I even come back to breath, I'll just notice that's just a thought. And if there's a little charge with the thought about my to-do list, oh, that's just a charge, an emotional charge. It feels like this. It's just a feeling being known. Can that be okay? Right? So we're learning to diffuse the bait. Oh, it's just bait. It's just bait. It's just bait. And you can even use that as a mantra. You know, when these little 
hooks arise, oh, that's just a hook. I don't have to take it. Why would I bite down on that? No, it's just that. So if we can see it in its simplicity as just something arising in the space of awareness being known, then we gain confidence in this capacity to protect the mind or to prevent the mind from getting lost. So it would be nice to hear from some of you. I'm sure cumulatively, all of us, we've learned quite a bit about this particular kind of effort called restraint or guarding the mind, protecting the mind, preventing the mind from falling into unwholesome states. So even stories of when you couldn't, it's good. Your wounds from the past, successes. And we have this mic here. So you can hold it close to your mouth and then we'll be able to hear you. What comes to mind? Questions too, of course, are fine. What have you been learning? Anybody ever restrain themselves from anything? You know, the fact is we do it all the time. Otherwise, we would be dead. Really. If we didn't know how to prevent or refrain ourselves from, you know, going to these places that aren't so wholesome. Yeah. First, you, I don't know your name, and then Nick behind you when you're done. Hi. Um, so... Uh, my my father died about six months ago, and um, since then I I was I was really relating to what you were talking about about this sort of this state of of um, ignorance and thinking my life is going to be this beautiful beautiful thing that's never going to change. I had this moment before he died where I was like, oh, I've arrived. I had finished grad school. I got the job that I wanted, and then he passed away, and things have been pretty. I've been suffering a lot in the last six months, um, particularly with my relationship with my mother, who's now a widow, and um, is relying on me for a lot of emotional support. Um, and so uh, I was here about two weeks ago and we were talking about effort. And so I have been practicing over the last few weeks noticing when I get to a place where I just don't want to see her, because that happens regularly. I just... I just am exhausted by her. And um, she, on, on Wednesday, I had this particularly difficult day. I woke up and I got a parking ticket for expired tabs, which I had gotten a notice about and didn't respond to it because things feel like too much a lot of the time. And um, so I just kind of went through my day and um, it was a difficult day. My mom called me at 2.30 in the afternoon saying that she had moved all of the mattresses off of the beds in her house. And um, she's fairly physically sick. And then she was hyperventilating and sweating. And she had no mattresses on her beds anywhere. And they were just in different places around the house. And could I come over that evening and put them on beds? <laughs> And I had you know, four different things I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to come here because um, this would have been good for me. And um, I had a, a wake that I wanted to go to. And I also wanted to go to the gym. And I had all these things. And I just felt so mad at her that she had done this thing that was clearly a stupid thing to do, <laughs> considering her health. And um, I, just was, I was just revved up about it. And I once I noticed that, I just took a minute and I, I really started to focus my mind on the things that I loved and cared for about her and just in about my day and the things that were going to be of most value to me. And I ended up going and getting my tabs for my car. <laughs> and then I went to the wake and then I went and helped her with the mattresses. And um, once I had just kind of settled on that as the right thing to do, I ended up actually having a really lovely evening, both with her, but also at this wake, and I got the things done that I needed to do. And my life does not always go like that, but it was one particular moment where I think doing this practice really worked for me. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that really practical example. And the thing that it sounds like happened is, even though the upset or the irritation might have been the biggest thing in the mind with neon lights, there was something smaller, which was, well, she's doing the best she can. Some quality of compassion, right? So 
part of the skill at preventing is not assuming that the mind has to look at the big thing that's there, the strong thing that's there, that there may be other places uh, that the mind can attend to that are quieter, more subtle, but really wholesome versus taking the bait. Thanks so much. You can pass the mic back to Nick, who's right behind you. Thank you. Um, I've been uh, noticing over uh, the years I've been practicing kind of a interesting development with effort kind of like that where I have a tendency in my mind to make things really heavy before I do them, before I act. You know, there's a lot of thinking that goes on. And so like action sometimes becomes like almost impossible to do. And I end up, you know, like, you know, laying in bed for a long time or just laying on the floor, kind of like I do not know what to do about the situation. Um, and lately I've noticed in the last year kind of, uh, you know, noticing the self-talk that's going on during that time and kind of noticing how I can kind of say, hey, you know, like you don't really need to like, you know, like it's like becoming more obvious, you know, gra gradually over time kind of like you're saying as you go through something, you start to be like, it gets easier. And I start to notice like it's easier to say, hey, you don't need to do that. You know, like this isn't going to help you out or you're just being insecure, you know, or you're just being worried. And it, it's really like, it is really, it feels really liberating, really amazing, actually really refreshing. And I feel like I can, it's easier to act in, and if I make a mistake when I act, to not be so, to not be so afraid of that, to just kind of let it happen and kind of like roll with the mistakes. But it's definitely seemed like it's been, you know, I've noticed that it's over and over, like doing it over and over again, over and over again. And it seems like, but I do notice that a little bit easier as it goes along. Yeah. Yeah, that's the confidence that comes. Yeah, so we'll pick this up in a, in a couple, for the next couple of weeks, we'll look at those other three kinds of efforts. Um, effort to prevent, to abandon, to develop, and to maintain. But I'd encourage you to just start looking for them as you, you know, do the next few weeks of your life so that we have more to share. And I'll save more time for uh, people's comments. So it'd be nice. We learn a lot from hearing these stories from two. So let's have more time next Sunday. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.